0: Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. You're in for a treat today because. We've got a show talking about 1031 exchanges. And uh the guest that I have on the show today, his name is Greg Shoey. And he's been doing this for a long, long, long time. And I can't wait to dive in, ask him questions. I didn't even want to do much prep with him and talk to him before the podcast because I wanted to hear I wanted you to hear the answers to the questions that I ask him as we do this podcast, as we go along here. But um Listen, guys, don't forget, if you want to get the show notes, if you want to listen to previous episodes, go check us out at realestateinvestingmastery.com. Realestateinvestingmastery.com. I know it's a long domain. I think I do have reimpodcast.com. But for anyway. Also, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. Let us know that you like us. Leave us a review. We're also on Stitcher. Google Play somewhere. I think we're on Google Play. I've not been able to figure that out with my iPhone, how to find Google Play podcasts. iHeartRadio. In fact, I think if you have an Amazon Echo, one of those Amazon devices, you could actually say, Amazon, play the, or Alexa, play the Real Estate Investing Mastery podcast. And it'll actually play it for you from the TuneIn app if you've got that skill enabled. Anyway. Glad you're here. I want to just dive right in. Greg, how are you, sir?
1: I'm doing great, Joe, and I appreciate you having me on the call today. I'm looking looking forward and excited to it, so appreciate it.
0: Nice. You know, we met, Greg, what was it, probably 2006 and 7 through Annette. Do you remember Annette?
1: I do, actually. Yep. Yeah, I do. Actually, it was 2006, 2000. Yeah, it was. It was. That's a long time ago. Yeah, it was.
0: I was <laughs> just getting started in real estate. I was just starting to buy some deals and... um don't ask me how those deals ended up, <laughs> but <laughs> for some reason, yeah, you gotta touch yeah, some. But for some reason, I forget how or why we connected. But I think Annette was a mutual. She was a realtor and um, mutual friend. I think she introduced us or something like that. And we've just kind of kept in touch over the years. And I was taking a realtor class because I have my license with Keller Williams, and every year or two years, you have to take these classes to for continuing education. And one of them that I signed up for was a class about the 1031 exchange. And I did not know that you were teaching it. And when I showed up, there you were. It was pretty cool. So I'm glad to have you on the show.
1: Well, good. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I think I, I'm actually, I've been a real estate agent myself since 2003. Okay. And I was an agent in the office with the net. So yeah, it's, it's, um, ah, that's come funny. a long way, kind of come full circle. Yeah. It was, it's neat to uh, get back into the teaching realm. And uh, see some of the people that have been through not only the last four or five years, but the last 10 years uh, through the last recession and, and seeing how successful you and your platform has been on your wholesale side. So that's awesome to see how you've grown and come a long way from that first uh, couple of deals we kind of looked at back in those six or seven.
0: I think awesome. we, we both have the battle scars to um, to show, don't we?
1: That is true. That is true.
0: So what can you go first, before we get into 1031 Exchange, give us some background on how you got started in real estate and kind of lead that into how'd you become the go-to guy for 1031 Exchanges?
1: Oh, great question. So let's go back to about 2001, and um, I'll go ahead and reference it. Today is 9-11, and I was actually uh, prior military, and I was out of the military working a a job um, as a sprinkler fitter, pipe fitter in, in the city, and... Had the nine to five, had the 40 hour work week, had a secure job, and I was in my break room watching the towers fall. And I'm like, you know what? This isn't the life I want to live. So I reached out to a good friend of mine, a mutual friend. You and I both know his name's Jason. Yeah. He was in the board. <laughs> that's all you list. need to say. Yeah. He Just was in the board. Just his first name.
0: Just his first name. That's um,
1: it. I said, you know what? I said, I want to <laughs> do something different. Can you come in and coach me? So 2001, literally, I went from a 40 hour paycheck to 100% commission. Uh, in the mortgage business until 2003. Uh, 2003, I went through and got my real estate license, and I started selling apartment complexes and apartment deals down in the city. And I was going through, I was in a blue boutique, and 2004, I signed up for some coaching. And on my coaching call, I was one of the only, if not the only, commercial practitioner at that point because I was selling multifamily and doing deals. Hmm. My coach said, you need to look into and become affluent with Section 1031 of the tax code. So I did. I researched it, looked into it, and I found this company that I've been affiliated with since 2004 called Asset Preservation. They are a leading qualified intermediary, been around since 1990. And I found them. They found me. I became a division manager for them. And one of my mentors early on said, if you want to learn something, if you want to master something, go teach it. So I kind of dove in with both feet and learned about the 1031s and started teaching the classes at the realtor boards, realtor associations. Um, I've been speakers at different engagements, conventions, keynote speakers for not only realtors, but for attorneys and CPAs and financial advisors, because this concept of 1031 tax deferral comes up on all, if not all, just about every commercial deal. That's ever done. So, asset preservation has been around since 1990. They've done over 175,000 of these 1031 exchanges. How many? 175,000. Wow. Where are they based out of again? So, they're based out of Sacramento, out of California. Yeah. And they've got a presence nationwide. And they've got division managers like myself that are kind of spread out throughout the country. And all we do is we go help educate on the topic of 1031 and we also provide and help with the services that's needed for investors to facilitate the 1031 too. So, so yeah, I've been licensed since 03, been doing 1031 since 04 and, um, and, uh, we're still going strong today. So on both sides, real estate and 1031s.
0: Nice. And how much of this is your current business right now? Cause you do, you do a lot of things. You still invest in real estate yourself. You, you list properties occasionally. What percent of your business is done with helping people with 1031 exchanges?
1: I would say in today's market, um, my personal business side for the 1031s is about 15 to 20%. Okay, cool. You know, there's speaking engagements outside of that and there's, you know, stuff like that. But I would say, it's you know, it's it's what they kind of refer to as your side gig, your side hustle. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a side hustle for me. And I mean, I've been doing it long enough that, People are still calling me, you know, just to bounce ideas or to do that. So it's it's just one of the things that's just kind of been in place for so long. Okay. You, know, you don't, want to, don't want to get rid of a good thing. So.
0: Okay. Let's talk about the history of a 1031 exchange. Um, your class was really good. I wish we could have recorded it and just released it as a podcast. Okay. But I didn't think of that in time. <laughs> That's all
1: right. We can do that later today. That's I'm 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 open to that idea.
0: But uh, let's talk about some of the history of the 1031 Exchange. How did it get started, and, and why?
1: Yeah. So let's just kind of go back to way before your and I and my time. Let's go back to the 1920s.
0: Well, first of all, before we do the history, can you explain just in a couple sentences what the 1031 Exchange is, so people sure. are, aren't yeah. lost? Yep.
1: yep. So in my three-hour class, I usually premise the class with a question of, of what, right? What is the easy part? It's the how. Is the mechanics and the metrics and the nuances of of knowing what to do and what not to do is really what gets people in trouble. But what the what is simply this: a 1031 exchange is an IRS-approved program that allows an owner of real property to defer up to 100% of their capital gains for property held for productive use in a trade or business, or for investment. As long as they reinvest the proceeds into a property held for productive use in a trade or for investment, so that's kind of the what. You know that, and that's what really scares people a lot of times. It's like, well, if, if you know, I and I get this all the time. Well, I don't want to do a 1031 exchange because I could get audited. Well, mm-hmm. my 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 thing is, well, why don't you go ahead and do it because you're allowed to do it as long as you do it in accordance with the guidelines of section 1031. So, you know, the what is real simple. You know, it's an IRS approved program that allows owners of real estate or real property, I'd take that back, real property, to defer capital gain taxes on property held for productive use in a trade, business, or for an investment as long as they reinvest into property held for productive use, trade, business, or for an investment. That's the what. Yeah. Okay. So,
0: yeah. It's a way to defer taxes on your capital gains.
1: Correct. It is a deferral. So,
0: yeah. So if avoidance. you buy a... If you buy a rental property and it appreciates 50 grand, you sell it. You have 30 days to take the proceeds and reinvest it in another similar type of investment property. Well, th- we'll talk about the rules, like
1: how many well, days. we talk about the how the- a little bit. Yeah, yeah you are on the right track. Let's talk about the how in a few minutes. We'll go through the how. Yes. We'll go through, I'll go through a scenario and I'll kind of paint a picture of a couple of scenarios that I've worked with. I talk about in my classes to kind of give people an idea on how, kind of the how, Related yes, to okay. stories. So yeah, let's go through the how later. Yep.
0: First, then the history. How did this get started?
1: So history came around in 1920s, you know, World War I. They were looking for ways to generate some income for the federal government. Um, you fast forward, everybody's kind of chumming along. World War II happens. Um, it really wasn't until the 1970s where, and for people that are listening to this in other parts of the country, there are other acronyms, like for example, the, the term that's more common is a Starker exchange. That actually came out of a court case in the 70s where the Starkers, uh, they kind of pushed the envelope a little bit. You know, they were kind of gray area kind of thing. They did some things right on one exchange and the IRS validated it. The court validated it. And then they went into another one and they kind of pushed the envelope a little bit. And it wasn't until about the 1980s where we kind of got this, you know, the, the solidified of what the actual 1031 exchange looks like today with the the time frames and the time, and what's allowed and what's not allowed, and things like that. So, you know, the Starker case in the 70s was really, really pivotal in getting us to where we are today. And, and nothing's really changed over the years, so to speak. There's been a few things that have come and gone, and things that qualify and don't qualify. But in essence, the 1031 in itself has pretty much stayed the same since the 1920s. All right. So, it's been around a long time. It's that it. And it, and it boggles my mind that even today, and people, you know, I'll ask them, "So, have you ever heard of this before?" And They're like, "I have no idea." And they're like, "Well, it's been around since the '20s." You know, it's not it's not this new and approved like yeah. program that's just out there. It's 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 a proven it's a proven model, and it, it works.
0: Nice. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about. Can you give an example deal? An example ten thirty one exchange.
1: Sure. Sure. So what I, what I want to do is I want people to remember something. A 1031 exchange is, in essence, it's a process. And it's the same process for the investor that wants to sell a single family rental to the corporate entity LLC that wants to sell a 50, 60, $70 million property. It's the same process. And I don't know if you have or I can. I can share however you want to do it. Sure. I can share um, a checklist for it, all the listeners to basically put that in your file and just work through the checklist. It's the same checklist um, regardless. So, you know, the first thing that people really do and and the the first thing that I really try to to advise people to do, especially my clients and people that I work with is, you know, review everything and bring in a tax or legal advisor. You know, that's the big thing. You want to review everything because every transaction is different. You got to make sure the structure is the same. You got to make sure the tax compliance is there. You know that's one of the first things. So
0: and, and and do this before you sell your investment property.
1: Do it before you sell your investment property. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The next big key to this process is you have to initiate your 1031 exchange prior to closing. Yeah. So let's say let's say we have a closing set up for tomorrow, and you can set it up today. But you know tomorrow's Wednesday. Don't close on Wednesday and call me on Thursday to set it up because once you close. You can't, you're done. You have to pay taxes. So you have to initiate the exchange prior to closing on the property. You want a 1031 exchange. Okay, good. Yeah. So in essence, the exchange period, the exchange process, there's four steps. So first thing has to happen is a sale. Okay. At the closing of the sale through what we call direct deed, the property is transferred to the buyer of the property. Okay, the deed goes to the buyer. Now here's where it gets a little bit tricky is that the money actually does not go back to the to the seller, it goes to an intermediary. That's right. what we do. We hold the money. Okay. So once that happens, once that property is sold and the money is held, there's what we call the exchange period. And the exchange period has two critical numbers to it. The first one is forty five. Okay, the second one is 180. So the exchange period says that within 45 days of closing, you have to identify the property you're going to replace with the property you just sold. Yeah, 45 days. 45 days to identify. Now, here's the kicker. Saturdays, Sundays, and holidays are included in the 45 days. So you don't have a lot of time to to do that. So the next thing that happens is once you identify your replacement property, this is step number three you actually set up the closing with the replacement property. And at closing, the money that was held by the intermediary is transferred to the seller of the replacement property. And the deed transfers from the seller back to the taxpayer, Step number four, and the exchange is complete. Now, the second number is 180 days. So, and these run concurrent with the date of closing. So you have 45 days to identify a new property. You have 180 days to close on the property you identified. And again, Saturdays, Sundays, and holidays are included in that 180 days. So there's four steps.
0: That seems like a lot of time,
1: but... It seems like a lot of time. Yes. Yes. (laughs)
0: But it doesn't. Like, you find people all the time, I'm assuming, that like are running up against that deadline, freaking out.
1: Especially the 45 days. I will have to say, and I don't know if it's for factual, but I know a majority of the exchanges fail because they cannot find a replacement property within 45 days. Hmm. I mean, that's a big hurdle to get through when figuring out all the nuances of 1031 and, and trying to get through that process. Most exchanges fail within within the first 45 days because they don't have a game plan. They don't have a strategy in place to go out and find the replacement property.
0: Mm, that's scary. But well, I want to talk more about that here as we go on. So What's the important thing that people need to be aware of if they might have an investment property? I think what you're saying is talk to some, somebody competent in how this stuff works before you even sell your property, right?
1: Correct. Call, yeah, call us, call me, run the scenario. Tax or legal advisors are always encouraged um, and recommended by me. You know, we can, walk, we can work through it and make sure it's all, you know, it all makes sense. I'm trying to find a reference here and I know based on your based on your website and based on probably a majority of your listeners if you want to we can talk about dealer versus investor. I think that's a big one.
0: Sure, yeah. Could what, be a what, big, is, what is that about?
1: So let's let me get my reference here. So, you know, at during the normal cor- normal course of business. Let's kind of paint a picture. So, you and I and our clients and people we work with, if you ask them what they do, what do most people tell you? I am a real estate what? Investor. Investor. Okay. So the term investor is used kind of loosely in the real estate community. So one thing we have to make sure is that the IRS actually looks at the term investor a little bit different. Okay. There's what they call real estate investors, and there's also what they call real estate dealers. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're a real estate investor, according to the IRS and their guidelines, you can take advantage of section 1031 and tax deferral. If you fall under the guidelines of a dealer, real estate dealers are not allowed 1031 treatment, the properties. Interesting. Yeah. So let me just, give me just a second. Let me find that.
0: Is there a way around
1: that? (laughs) There is. Yeah. I'm going to try to find my little cheat sheet here. Okay. So basically what it comes down to is this. The dealer's, in the eyes of the IRS, are basically those that are property held for sale. So, let's call them wholesalers. Let's call them flippers. Let's call them buy, fix, and sell. Let's call them. Let's call them everything but buy and hold. Yeah. Okay. If you fall into that category, and there's actually a, a kind of a, and I think I talked about it in my class, there are certain things that the IRS will look at to figure out whether or not you fall under the dealer category not the investor. For example, one of the things they look at for dealers is the purpose for which the property was initially inquired. You know, what, what, what was it treated as when you bought it? What was it treated as when you owned it? What was it treated as when you sold it? You know, another one they look at the frequency number and continuity of sales. And that's another big one Hmm. to the extent of advertising promotion or other active efforts used by soliciting buyers for the sale of the property. So there's this thing, and I'm going to answer your question here, kind of went around about a way of doing it. What I've found is clients have actually been advised by their tax and legal advisors to set up two separate entities, two separate LLCs. If they want to take advantage of section 1031, go ahead and do your 1031 things under one LLC, the buy and holds, but put the other properties on your dealer side, you know, the fix and flips and the wholesales and all that other, all that other stuff, lease options and things like that. On the other side as a dealer, you can do both. You just have to keep them separate. And there's a lot of court cases out there that's, that show you got it. You got it. There's a there's a line in the sand. You got to stay. You got to stay on either side. You can't cross them.
0: Interesting. Can't go back.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I can share that. I can share this uh, this sheet with me, too, you know, to kind of give them some guidance. Yeah, um, we can we can work through that. I'd be more happy to share that, too. So that's really a big one. That's really a big one.
0: Interesting. What if you've been a dealer for the last couple years and you want to change and start doing them in a different entity like that? What is it? When can you do that, or is it, is it ever too late? You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense?
1: Um, I think so. It. I would say it's never too late. I just know that you know the advice that's been given by tax and legal advisors is to create two separate entities. So if you want to start doing buy and holds, you know, put that in one entity and identify that as your buy and hold. Okay. uh, as, As your buy and hold, you know, strategy.
0: So the investment property that you're selling needs to be in that LLC. That is more of your buy and hold LLC, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yep.
0: So, but what if you, hmm because I'm sure there's somebody listening to this who has one LLC and they buy and hold in that LLC and they fix and flip in that LLC and they wholesale deals in that LLC. And they got an investment property they want to sell, do a 1031 exchange for, they'd probably be classified as a dealer. Um, and I know you can't give legal advice, you're not an attorney. But my question then is, it is it possible to Transfer that property they want to sell into a, a separate LLC, wait a few months, and then do the 1031 exchange? And would that help with showing that they are not a dealer? Um, you
1: know, it. yeah, I agree with you. It's probably more on the legal side. Yeah. But it's, okay. for example, it's, it's how long, it, and I guess then I say how long, it's the intent to hold for investment is really critical when substantiating 1031, you know, treatment. Okay. So... You know how that looks or how that's structured is up to whoever you know the the the, the client and their, and their and their tax advisor. I'm not I'm not saying you know it will or will not work. I just know that if you want to do the buy and hold strategy, you just have, a, have to have a separate LLC.
0: Okay, talk about so, yeah. the intent for a little bit. How wh- how can people get in trouble with the issue of intent?
1: Good question. So, you know, intent really involves. It kind of goes around the concept of you know what what you do when you own it or what you do when you buy it what you do when you own it what you do when you sell it so to prove the investment intent you know you have to hold it for basically going back to the to the beginning of the 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 podcast it said intent to hold for um trade business or for an investment you know if you can hold it for those purposes yeah that really comes into play one of the things that comes up a lot more often than not and i get this question just about every call that I talk to, to clients about, you know, how long do I have to own a piece of property in order for it to qualify for 1031? Right. Um, that's a, that's a big one. So what I know is that there is no minimum holding period. Okay. Time is only one factor. So, you know, if, if you're talking to somebody and I've, you know, again, it's if you're, if you're talking to your buddy and they say, well, I got to hold it for at least two years in order to qualify for 1031. That's not really true. It's to hold the intent to hold for investment. So let me give you an example. Purchase a property. Let's say it's a single family rental, right? Purchase it and you put a tenant in there with a lease option on it. Let's say they have a two year lease option and it's in your LLC for a buy and hold. Okay. It's your 1031. Let's say 1031 exchanged into it and you put it into a lease option. You can prove the, the, the hold for intent for investment. You know, they're paying rent. You treat it as an investment property let's say eight months later, they call you and say, hey, I got a big bonus. I got my credit repaired. I got everything fixed up. I'm ready to go. I got pre-approval from a lender. I want to go ahead and exercise my option. Can you do that under Section 1031? And the answer is yes, as long as you can substantiate the the intent to hold for investment. Okay. We've seen seen it. We've seen people that have owned property less than a year. They intend to hold it for investment. They follow the guidelines. And then that's kind of a common you know common theme now the lease option scenario interesting yeah so that, that comes up so there is no minimum holding period
0: okay good good uh, you've mentioned this checklist before um, can you give us a website where people can get it and then can you kind of talk about what's on the checklist
1: sure so the the intermediary website is api exchange.com
0: Apiexchange.com, okay. And then, is there any place anywhere on here to get that?
1: There is. If you go to the upper right where it says search, if you want to put checklist, um, I've got a cleaner version. I can. I got a PDF. I can either post it to the podcast or however you want me to get it to you. If you want to share it, I can get you a PDF version. It's a lot cleaner than what's on the website, but it's the same checklist. It's just mine's cleaner. It's one page.
0: Well. I don't know how I'm going to get it to people though who are listening to this. So if you, yeah, there's a search icon on the website, you click on that type in checklist. There is a checklist here that I see that's on a, uh, right there on the website. Nice. Okay.
1: Perfect. So yeah, can yeah.
0: you review, um, what, what's, what is on this checklist for people that can't look at it right now?
1: Basically it's, it's start to finish. It's, you know, reviewing the transaction with legal advisors, tax and legal advisors, initiating the exchange. You have to do that. That's a, that's a, that a must do before you close. Mm-hmm. Other things too, for example, if a lot of people are doing their own contracts, um, I know in the real estate world, the 1031 language or verbiage is built in, but if you're, if you're doing 1031 exchanges, you have to have a, an assumable, I'm sorry, an assignable contract yeah. Yeah. at a minimum. So if you don't have the language in there and there's actually on the website, there's actually a, a Uh, a sample verbiage that says in 1031 on the same website, as long as the contract's assignable, that's acceptable. So it's, you know, it's ABC Corporation and or signs, you know, set up the exchange. There's exchange documents at the closing. Uh, You close on the property. You have 45 days to identify. There's a form you actually have to fill out on your identification before the 45th day. You have to fill out a form and send it in. You go, you know, write a contract, purchase the property on the other side, the replacement property, and everything just kind of flows through. Paperwork's done, paperwork's prepared. And, you know, there's on this checklist, there's 12 steps. So you just you just follow the checklist. It's
0: okay, good. Yeah. This checklist, there's 12 steps on it. It's pretty simple. The thing that's that's really flashing in front of me, like that's really important. Contact a company that can help you with this exchange transaction. Well, you have to. You can't do it on your own.
1: Can't do it on your but,
0: own. Right. Talk to somebody before you actually sell the property. I want to make sure everybody knows that. And can you talk a little bit about some common mistakes that people make? I know you've already touched on a couple of them, but can you think of some common mistakes that people make when they try to do a 1031 exchange?
1: Sure. So there's three big ones that I talk about in my in my class. Let me get. Um, and I like talking about them. Because what I tell people, you know, we get these questions all the time. Well, can I do this? Well, how about this? Or can I do this? Or if I go do this, can I change this and do this? I'm like, you know, at the end of the day, here's what I'm going to tell you. If you do it and the IRS ever challenges it and accepts it, I get the opportunity to talk about it. Right. Tell people that it works. Yeah. If you do it and the IRS ever challenges it and they don't allow it, I still get to talk about it. You know, so, you know, there are people out there like to push the envelope and there's nothing wrong with that but there are people out there that just you know, want to make sure that everything's in place and everything's done right. So the three big ones that come up are identifying, let's see, identify within 45 days. So there's a court case out there called Christian versus commissioner. What happens, here's the other thing to think about too. So 180 days or your tax filing date. So if you initiate an exchange past October 16th or 17th of any, any given year, Your 180 days goes out past your tax filing date, April 15th. Okay? Okay. So if you want to capitalize on the entire 180 days, you can actually file an extension on your taxes. You're not allowed to file an extension on your exchange. Okay. But here's what you don't want to do. You do not want to file your taxes before you complete your exchange. And the Christiansons actually did that. So you want to make sure, and and again, going back to the website, there's actually a 45, 180-day exchange calculator under the Exchange Basics tab where if you type in the closing date, it'll tell you your 45 days and your 180 days based on your exchange. It's pretty cool. It kind of an interactive little page there. Okay. So that's what not to do. Um, The second one, Dobrik. Okay. Dobrik – because again, we talked about where most exchanges fail is within the first 45 days, because they're not able to find replacement properties suitable to meet their exchange requirements. The yeah. Dobricks, the Dobricks actually backdated their identification form, and they put the wrong date down. So not hmm. only when the IRS. Oh, looked I at remember
0: it. you talking about this. <laughs> yeah, this is the don't biggest. do
1: this. Don't do, do this. Do not do this <laughs> because because the Dobricks actually backdated. Yeah. Actually, they intentionally backdated their notice. And it's funny because I actually taught a class once for a CPA, um, continuing education. And one of the CPAs came up to me and said, you know, it's funny. I actually used to sit in an office and go through the 1031 forms to talk about when somebody bought it, when somebody sold it, Mm. when it is literally there's a, there's a, there's something in place that actually looks at all those numbers on there at the IRS. Yeah. So the Dobricks had a $2.2 million capital gain tax. That was their capital gain tax. They also got hit with a 75% or about a $1.6 million fraud penalty. Penalty. Yes. Fraud. (laughs) Oh, so don't be Dobrik. Yeah. You know, don't be, don't be Dobrik. Don't be that guy.
0: Wow. Okay. That's uh that's scary. Yeah. You don't want to get you don't want to make the IRS mad.
1: Yeah. You know, you just, just just do the way it's you know, do the way it's supposed to be done. That's that's the big thing. It's it's there for it's there for a reason. It's it's you know, take advantage of it. Take advantage yeah. of it. And and that's I mean, we all know that real estate is a great wealth building tool. Take advantage of the program and just go out and create that wealth and build that legacy because I mean they've all done it. I mean, from the Joe McCalls of the world to the you know, Donald Trumps, they all do it. Uh You know, build that legacy. It's there. Why not?
0: Good. All right. What are some other mistakes?
1: You know, I think the biggest one is, and kind of going back to the the requirements for full tax deferral, you know, a lot of times people think that they can pay off debt when they're doing a 1031. Let's say you have, let's say you want a 1031 exchange out of a property and let's say you you have $100,000 in debt and you know, one of the requirements, the two, one of the two requirements for full tax deferral is you have to reinvest all the net equity and you also have to transfer equal or greater debt. That's the requirement. Because yeah. what the IRS does is the IRS looks at a reduction in debt as a benefit and therefore benefits are taxable. So a lot of people get caught up in what we call mortgage boot scenarios. So if that $100,000 note is on the property that you're selling to do the 1031 exchange, you have to transfer equal or greater debt to the new property. Oh, yeah. So you have to go to the new property with at least $100,000 in debt. Interesting. Yeah. People, now, wh- people, why,
0: why is that?
1: What? Well, going back to the reduction in debt, reduction in debt is a benefit, according to the IRS. Okay. And, you know, it's a benefit, and benefits are taxable. Okay. So people are, are faced with what we call mortgage boot.
0: All right. So this may be a dumb question what is the advantage, bottom line, of doing a 1031 exchange? Because you're going to have to pay taxes on it eventually, right? Someday down the road, maybe in 30 years when your heirs actually sell whatever property you've transferred that over into, maybe the taxes are going to be higher in 20 years from now than they are today. And you're going to now have to pay taxes on a probably you know if that property is appreciated, you're are are you gonna have to pay, let's say 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you finally sell the last property and you don't do a 1031 exchange and you have to pay your taxes now. Do you have to pay taxes then on the gain that you would have had back 10 years ago when you sold the property, or the taxes on the gain of the new property that you've transferred it into? Does that make sense what I'm asking?
1: It does does so so let's let's break that down into two parts so the first part is in order to qualify in order to figure out what your capital gain is going to be you have to establish a basis so you have to go back to the beginning of, okay. you got to figure out a basis so the basis is simply this it's the original purchase price plus any improvements minus depreciation okay okay and when I say go back to the beginning let's let's paint a picture about, let, about this. let's say you have you buy your first rental property today and you 1031 you sell you, you know you sell this one down the road and you, you exchange into two properties exchange into four properties you exchange 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 and you can exchange as many times as you want. Let's say you built up a multi-million dollar portfolio and you did this through exchanges throughout the entire process. The day that you decide that you want to cash out, they revert back to the beginning, the basis. So let's say your original property was one hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and today you sell it for, you know, a million, or down the road you sell it for a million. You got to go back to the basis okay. to establish what your tax liability is going to look like. So it the, the original purchase price plus improvements minus depreciation. Okay.
0: Do your heirs have to pay the taxes?
1: The way it's set up today, based on today's tax law, is that there's actually a step up in basis to the heirs of the real estate. What does that mean? So if you, if you, if, uh, when you pass away, (laughs) whatever the value of the property at upon transfer to the beneficiaries, that's the establishment of the new basis for the beneficiaries. Okay. So there's what they call a step up in basis. That's based on today. It could change. it has changed. It just but that's based on today. there's what they call a step up in basis to the beneficiaries. okay, So that's where they start. That's their basis. Now let's talk about the second side real quick. yeah, because this is the other thing to consider. When you decide to sell, so basically what you're deferring is taxes. There's three possibly four taxes that that are that you could be affected by. If you decide not to do a 1031, the first one is the federal, which is currently at 15% for the low wage earners under a certain threshold. If you make over a certain threshold, you're 20%. But let's just say a majority of everybody is 15%. So you're 15% federal. The prop, the state that the property is located in, for example, Missouri, where we're at, it's six, around 6%, I think. And then the third one is kind of the big one, especially if you have a property with improvements, it's depreciation recapture, which is 25%. So whatever, for every dollar you've depreciated, you have to pay that back 25 cents, 25% back if you decide not to do a 1031 exchange. Okay. So there's federal, there's state, whatever state the property is located in, and then there's depreciation recapture of 25%. Okay. Clear so, as mud. Those, clear as mud. Those <laughs> numbers could up real quick. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. This is depressing. I, anytime. Talk about taxes.
1: Talk about taxes. That's yeah. why 1031 is here. You know, I just know. keep the firm. Just keep the firm. It's,
0: it's important. This is super important. All right. Let's talk about opportunities for real estate investors and agents. Because there's a lot of opportunity for somebody who's smart that can help these people who do 1031 exchanges to find deals, right? Yes. What What are some of the, cause you had a great little in the class. It wasn't just all legal, you know, mumbo jumbo, which is important by the way, I'm not minimizing that, but like it's you also, code. G-
1: on, yes. Code. Yeah.
0: But you yeah. also gave some really good tips and advice for real estate agents and investors on how to make some money helping these folks. Can you talk about Absolutely.
1: that? Yeah. So, Let's talk about the agent the agent world for a little bit. So, basically in my class I talk about six strategies for agents to increase their income. You know, and and the big one is, you know, if you if you if you if you help somebody sell a property in a 1031 exchange, they have to go out and buy another piece of property or more properties. Yeah. So, in essence, you double your transaction volume with one sale. Mhm. Yeah, I mean, that's really that's really kind of the the down and dirty with the real estate professionals. You go out and you do a couple ten thirty ones, and you basically you can double your your transaction volume real quick. Yeah. You know the, the other one is kind of you know familiarize yourself with real estate. One of the things that I talk to real estate agents about is, you know, what you say. And actually, I mean, in, in my real estate world, I do a lot of commercial and and farm sales. I still carry an information pamphlet with me, and I give them the information because what you don't want to do. Is not tell them about the option of ten thirty one. And then when they go to sell, because I've seen this in a court case, they go to sell and their TPA says, Well, I need to check for this for your taxes, oh. and I need to check for this because you're ten thirty one. And they're like, Well, I didn't know I didn't know about ten thirty one. Well, your agent didn't tell you, and they're like, No. So you, you gotta you gotta protect, I'd say got it, you gotta protect yourself by what you say, but also you gotta protect yourself by what you don't say. Sure. You know, that's, I, 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 think that's equally important.
0: Where can they, can they get to one of those brochures from your website?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Or if they want to send me an email, I can, I can mail them. I, I've got them by the box fulls. Good. However you want to get, how we can get that. But yeah, it's on the website too.
0: All right. Um, by the way, the website again is API exchange, asset preservation incorporated, API and And we'll give you Greg's email here in just a minute. So how does a realtor or the investor find these investors that maybe want to do a 1031 exchange or have already done one? Does that make sense? And they're within that window, and maybe there's some opportunity we can help them find some deals.
1: You mean as far as a like a like a secondary market or a web page? Well, I don't know.
0: Thing? Is there a you know what are are there are there realtors out there that target investors that might want to do a 1031 exchange or maybe yes. have already started the process and um, are looking to f- looking for deals? How do you find those investors that are under that gun? They've got 45 days to identify. How do you find them?
1: You know, it really goes back to your broker network. Okay. Um, you know, if you're a part of an association, a realtor association, like for example, in St. Louis, we have the commercial information exchange. You know, we can send out email blasts. It really goes back to your network, your broker network not mm-hmm. only your broker network, but also goes outside to, and this is one of the things I talk about in class or investor mode, investor motives. Um, I talk about seven investor motives and one of them, you know, I, i truly believe that right now, the biggest, I feel the biggest opportunity for real estate professionals are working with estate planning attorneys. Interesting. Uh, wow. I really, I, I just really believe that. And I, I might be cutting myself off because I'm out chasing estate planners but I'm I'm I just feel that estate planning attorneys are probably the biggest resource right now, because you know, to going through a 1031 exchange, what you need on the other side. So you start talking to your network. Hey, I need a property that's, you know, at least a million dollars, and it's got to have this percent of return. And you know, you may come across an estate planner attorney or an investor that's looking for a different alternative.
0: Well, okay. When let me ask you this question because I'm just thinking of. You said before, when you are selling a property, you have to do a new contract, and you have to. Can, I, I'm trying to remember what you said. Is the name of the buyer, or uh, when you're when you're selling an investment property, there there's that intermediary that has to be involved, right? Correct. Is there anything in the county records if somebody is pulling a list? that would or even going to county records to look for people who are doing 1031 exchanges is there anything in the county records that would pop up maybe a, a specific type of deed or a specific document that was filed that could f- alert somebody that hey this is a this is an investor who just started a 1031 exchange does that make sense you know
1: i've not found anything like that i honestly don't know it exists um, it's a good question i just don't i just don't think it's out there
0: so who the this cuz if you go into county records you can see who the buyer is and who the seller is or mm-hmm. even in the mls is the seller do they have to be named something special when they're selling it like you know when you're doing no. a uh, when you're buying something in a self-directed ira mm-hmm. you know you you have to buy it in the name of a of a trust and a lot of times that trust would be the ira intermediary person right
1: right right
0: i'm just wondering is there a same yeah. something similar for the 10th no, exchange
1: i haven't found it i, I really haven't Okay. I haven't seen it. I guess, you know, been doing this 15 years. I haven't seen it.
0: Is there any kind of special deed that needs to be filed? No. Okay. Huh. I'm just thinking if there's, if there's some, some little trick to find these sellers, because if there was, you could contact them and say, Hey, the clock's ticking. You got 40 something days now to find a property. Do you want some help?
1: Yeah. <laughs> or do I have a property or yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I just haven't seen anything like that. If there's something out there, I mean by all means, you know, let us know.
0: Yeah. Let me know too. Yeah. Okay, so cool. Anything else as far as uh, opportunities? I don't know if you finished your list. You said there's six things six different ways that
1: So yeah, there's one you know, when I when I talk with real estate with real estate people, it's six ways to generate more income, more commissions.
0: Yeah, okay. Um
1: the other side of it, you know, there's a there's basically seven different you know, kind of top 7 investor motives. You know, one of them is cash flow. The other one is, you know, management relief. Diversification is another big one. So there's seven different investor motives that we try to uncover for people. Because a lot of times, you 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 know, you run into somebody that kind of comes into a situation. You know, they want to do something different. How do you get through that or how do you work through that process? And that's kind of going back to the real estate professionals to try to get better at having the conversation that goes beyond just transactional. You, okay. know, you know, I, I tell people that, you know, my, my job, you know, I got to pay my bills, so I'm transactional, but I can also tell you that I've got numerous clients that I've helped buy and sell numerous properties over the years. You know, I've got one particular client that I've helped buy probably close to a dozen properties. So if you can solidify the relationship, that's where I think you make your biggest impact is solidifying the relationship. Yeah. You know, we're transactional by nature because that's how we make money. But I think our wealth and our, and our impact is on the relation side. So there's always somebody looking for something different, you know, whether it's the, it's the grandma and grandpa that have accumulated 50 properties over the years and they want to consolidate them and they want to exchange all the 50 properties and they want to go on vacation and live a great life, be with the grandkids, or you've got somebody that may inherit. And I'll give you another example. I sell a lot of farms. Had a gentleman call us, my previous brokerage call us and had a piece of property in Kansas. He said, I get about 30 grand a year in income and I want to see what it's worth and I want to figure out what to do with it. And he said, Well, we'll meet you out there. He's like, Well, I've never been there. Hmm. Ended up being almost a four million dollar property. Wow. Holy smokes. So so again, it's this it's this conversation of so Based on today's returns on $4 million, if I can get you at least 5% return, would you rather keep getting the $30,000 from your farmer, or would you rather be getting $200,000 from a 5% return on a single tenant, triple net lease, or an office complex, or a, an apartment complex, and the guy's like, I'd rather have the 200000 So, nice. you know, it's just, it's, it's a different way to talk to people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's good. talk to people and just try to uncover, you know, uncover pain points and uncover, you know, share with them the goals and what they want to do. And again, 1031 is here for the long haul and might as well take advantage of it.
0: I like it. Yeah. Well, good. Any, any final words of advice, Greg, you'd want to give to somebody thinking about doing this or know somebody that thinking about doing it?
1: You know, on the website, there's an 800 number. You can call them. They've got exchange counselors that will kind of run the scenario through them. You know, when you call in, all I do is ask that you either heard me on the podcast or you we've talked and just reference my name so that way I can get credit yep. and you decide to do a 1031. But, you know, the, the toll-free number is 800-282-1031. Good.
0: 1031.
1: And there's exchange counselors Monday through Friday and just call them and just say, I'm, i am got this scenario. You know, they'll kind of give you the, the, the guidance on what it should look like and if it works or if it doesn't work. And then... They're there also to help you, you know, initiate the exchange and get you through the entire process from start to finish.
0: Nice. Yeah. Good. I don't get any by recommending these these guys either. I just like, know, and trust Greg. And I think he's definitely somebody you want to have on your team. So the website is apiexchange.com, and their phone number is 800-282-1031. 800-282-1031. They have offices in California and New York, so you can work with them in, in any state in the country. It's definitely something that I think people need to learn a little bit about. And hopefully, you know, it's <laughs> hopefully I almost said, Greg, I'm so sorry. I almost said, hopefully it's not in a three hour boring class. <laughs> your class was not boring. I was well, just thank you. trying to thank say you. something funny. And like
1: I said, it's tax code. You have to, yeah. you know, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's just tax code, so you gotta, you got to make it fun. And then also, Joe, if I if I, if I may, I mean, I'd consider me a resource.
0: Yes. If they want to call, if they your call phone me number?
1: personally, call or text, yeah. my cell phone number is area code 314-369-8766. Uh-huh.
0: Let me repeat that here. 314-369-8766.
1: And my personal email, you can email me, is my name, Greg Showe, S-C-H-O-W-E, 1972 at gmail.com.
0: Nice. Okay, so Greg Shoey, G-R-E-G, S C H O W E at Oops, oops, Greg Shoey 1972 mm-hmm. at gmail.com.
1: Sure. And if you just want to reference the uh you know, the podcast in the in the uh subject line I'll be more than happy to uh to help out however I can.
0: Great. Hey Greg, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it very much. You're welcome, sir. Hey guys, again, I know we gave a lot of websites and phone numbers and emails. So get the show notes at realestateinvestingmastery.com. Do a search in the search bar for Greg or 1031 and you will find this podcast episode and the show notes and all of that links and phone numbers will be on the show notes there. And um, I want to thank Greg for taking the time to be here and um, appreciate it, Greg. Thanks again.
1: All right, Joe, I appreciate it. You take care. see
0: you all later. Bye-bye.